As the world begins to emerge from the cave of the 21st century and opens its eyes onto the suffering from centuries of injustice and the bastardization of what it means to be free, the new Nomos podcast is a call. A call for a new beginning. A call for the new men and the new women that yearn to be truly free. A call for us to fulfill our destiny. A call for a new Nomos on the earth. Welcome to the New Nomos Podcast. I'm Abdallah Dutton, inviting you to join me on this journey of discovery to define what the New Nomos is and what we need to get there. Hello and welcome back to the New Nomos Podcast. This episode is with Dr. Maria Vraca, who is a music researcher, educator, teacher, pianist, and life coach with a passion for developing human potential. Over this last year, I've been on a journey with Maria and our master coach, Rashad Ahmed, and it seems so fitting to close off this year with this conversation with her. In it, we're exploring the language and philosophy of Western classical music. It's a subject that I am so passionate about, And I knew going into it that Dr. Maria had the key that I needed to open a door in my understanding of the world of music. And as you listen to the conversation, you'll understand what I'm talking about. And so without further ado, I present to you episode 38, Music and Our Divine Reality, The Language and Philosophy of Western Classical Music. Where I grew up, there was nothing, no music teacher, nothing. But uh, that was my mom's desire to see me as a little girl because I was a boy, practically. (laughs) I was such a dumb boy, always getting in trouble. So she tried to make me a little bit more girly. She tried ballet. I didn't like it. I didn't listen to the teacher. (laughs) We tried Greek dancing, the same. And then she took me to this teacher. There was one teacher in the city and she said, um, well, unless her feet touch the ground, I'm not going to teach her. I was six at the time. Mm. So my mom got disappointed. And, but she found a student of that lady who was a young girl. So she started giving me lessons in the church hall. And uh, I had an interest for that. I mean, I started playing tunes just from start. And uh, the next year I went to that big teacher and she took me on and she was my teacher for the rest of my, you know, my studies until I got my diploma. So that's how it started. Very, 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 uh, you know, by chance. Mm. Yeah. And that was the piano. That was the piano, yeah. I was practicing in a church hall without hitting, with gloves that had cut fingers out when I was like seven, eight years old, because it took my parents three years to to save money to get me a piano. My dad took us to a trip to Athens. We stayed in a hotel for two days. We were going around. It was a whole, it was so out of their comfort zone. So I'm very grateful to them <laughs> for that. 
And I started the tradition because my sister started after me, my cousins, and, um, you know, but yeah, I, I started something there with music, but I'm the only professional. How, how did music feel when you were a little girl? That's another funny story. Because at the time that uh, I started playing the piano, my cousin died, who was 21 years of age. So she died of um, leukemia in a very short period of time from the time she was diagnosed. So it was very sad. There was no music in the house. There was no TV. Everybody was crying. And I remember I had, I was around six years old, and my parents had two cassettes. One was like Greek bouzouka, you know, like <laughs> completely, you know, uh, easy music. And there was something classical. And that's all I, I was listening on repeat. So thinking back, it was like I was looking for that stimulation, which was not around. So me as a child, I found it and I had this little uh, player and I kept on playing the same things. But that's <laughs> that's how I started with these two different things in my ears. Um, when I started playing piano, I started making up tunes very easily, very easily. Anything I could hear, I could play back. Mm. So there was something there already. Yeah, it was my time. I liked it. So you've always been like an audio person? I think so. I remember I used to, because in Greece, in the, uh, you, you sleep in the summer, especially in the afternoon. Mm. Everybody was sleeping. And I would have a little transistor radio under my pillow, listen to music the whole time because I didn't want to sleep. I never sleep anyway. I didn't want to sleep. <laughs> I, I didn't want to sleep when I was a child, so I, I was listening to these things when everybody else was asleep, but I had to mute it under my pillow because mm. there were no headphones, nothing like that. I was looking for it. It was like I was looking for music everywhere. And when the birds sing? I don't know. I wasn't that aware of that. I remember I had a, a friend, a nightingale, because I was studying for my A-levels in the... In the night, I, I am a night person anyway. And this nightingale would see the light of my room and sing the whole night, keep me company. It was so amazing for two months, you know, in the spring. So that's the only time I, I noticed the birds. That, that bird that was my friend. Mm. But before that, yeah, I was just understanding but, it as nature. Yeah. But you see now, like, with a life of playing the piano and being in the world of music and all of this kind of your fine tuning of your audio faculties and everything. When you hear a bird sing, can you see in your mind the notation? Yeah, all frequencies, all, yeah, yeah, I can. So would you be able to write th the song of a nightingale in musical yeah. notation? Yes, but not in real time because the memory is limited. So you can only remember a few seconds. Uh, but if it was recorded and I hear it back, yes, I could, could, I could do segments. So if I write something, I will lose what is happening. So it doesn't happen in real time. I have to translate somehow. But yeah, I can, hmm. I can write anything I hear. Amazing. As far as my memory helps, yeah, as, uh, it retains that, yeah. Not something that I got stuck on the other day, right? How? Is it possible that Beethoven could write symphonies when he was completely deaf? Okay. He wasn't deaf from birth. 
Yeah. No, but like that later part of his life where he lost his hearing, but he was still mm -hmm. able to write symphonies. Now, I want to know, Let's... how is that possible? Okay. If you think now of a phrase, can you think it in your head and not speak it out? Yes. Okay. It's the same with music. It's called odiation. It's mm. an internalized process of music as a language. So he could hear his ideas and then write them in paper. Musicians have that. It's called even babies. We, when I, when I work with babies, that's what we're trying to do. Internalize music. You can internalize music too. You, you have it anyway. You can listen to something in your head, a melody, you know? Mm -hmm. Can yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, you can play, you else, can play a song in your head, right? Yeah. But for him, because he was a composer, this was something new. It was an, but it was his language. So he could compose anything. He did it. What he couldn't be, let's say, in charge of was the result of the people playing. And that's why in movies you see him very frustrated and he had this uh, reputation of being a very angry and difficult man. But it was because he couldn't conduct properly or because he couldn't hear the environment. But his music he could hear, yeah. And mm. then it's technique. It's like composing an essay. You compose a, a symphony or whatever. It's mm. not a simple but for Beethoven, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you currently working on with children and music? You touched on it a second ago. I have created my own program, uh, mm. which starts from before birth and goes up to five years of age. I call it music genius because <laughs> you get in touch with the genius that is inside the child. So the principle is that we are born and even before we are born, we can listen to music and have memories of that afterwards. But the most important thing is that we are born with abilities that are very, very defined and that we in the process lose because of our culture, because what is considered to be, um, more desirable around us. For example, we learn the relationships between the, the notes rather than their absolute position. Because if we didn't, if you hear happy birthday to you, and then you hear happy birthday to you, you wouldn't know it's the same song. What makes it the same song to your brain is the relationship between the notes that this is like these steps that are repeated. So that's how we recognize. So we, we start losing this kind of automatic, uh, it has to do with perception mostly. Um, babies can identify microtones between two notes, but, uh, because the music we hear around us, even the language is, is, is only using certain things. The neuropaths that are uh, developed guide everything to certain paths. In, in Gelstad psychology, we identify everything by proximity, similarity, and good continuation. So anything we listen, we try to group it according to what we know. So in my system, what I'm trying to do is create an environment where music is not um, always, it, it has variety. Mm. Different styles, different rhythms, different cultures. Uh, and it has this idea of repetition and the idea of silence as well. When you are in a baby class, their music ability is not obvious, but it's obvious when you, the music stops 
they will start singing, they will start moving. It's when their brain is trying to catch up with what has happened. So these are the main principles of my program. And it goes according to characteristics of every age. We go zero to 18 months, 18 months to 30 months, and then 30 months is three to four years and uh, four to five years. I have the syllabus for all of that. What's the most interesting experience that you've seen from having done this or, or doing this? With people, with their kids, with their children. Yeah, but like one example of just this, something amazing that you've seen from this work with the children and music. They are conductors, the babies. They know already how to um, kind of control their environment. They will show you with their body, with their hands, what they want to hear, with their voices, when they cannot express themselves yet. And yet you see that they understood and they have a favorite song. You have to listen. You have to be very, you know, focused on them. Mm. But that's the amazing thing, that they are already ahead of their maturity as, as, as bodies in mm. their heads. They're already there, musicians. That's the most fascinating thing. I love it. I love the key. I love the babies. That, that's the most fascinating. It's, it's really nice being around them. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I mean, the baby is completely fresh. There's no conditioning yet. There's no kind of veils and blockages on yeah. the reality. And they're completely in tune with their human nature. And this kind of moves into this this idea of music at its highest connecting us to an unseen reality. Yeah. Now, how does it do that? And what is happening? How is music like this vehicle to communicate these feelings and these ideas? These questions, Abdallah, are very difficult to answer. There are whole departments in Cambridge University trying to understand the evolutionary, um, uh, the evolutionary importance of music because music seems to be before language, seems to be developed before language. Even, even now, the babies will, will vocalize something before it's, it's, it's a word. But uh, if you take music away from the world, nobody's going to die. So that's, that, that's the main thing. But I can tell you what I, I think, my, what my theory is. Please. I think, I think music is our main uh, way of uh, connecting with our divine self. It's, it's a way of understanding something that is higher than us. It's something that doesn't need words to be explained. It doesn't need education to be understood. It's something that is in us and connects us with that feeling that we are something above what it's uh, our everyday, you know, life and, and things. And it, it's not a, it's not a mistake. It's not like, um, Coincidence that religion uh, has been controlling music for thousands of years. In the Middle Ages, music was only allowed in uh, in the framework of uh, of religion. If you played music outside uh, outside that context, you could be killed. 
and uh, it was only because of the trovadors and the trovers that they were going th this kind of um traveling singers that they were going from village to village and and kind of um spreading the idea of music with the lutes and all that and then how that's how polyphony started but the beginning was completely in the hands of church and still church uses music to help people connect with the divine for me personally um it's it's a it's a very easy way of um escaping the chaos in you know the chaos of of every everyday life and it's very available it's there so you listen to a piece of music for three minutes and you forget what has happened around you, what is happening in you. You know, you get carried away by that. Scientifically, why? It has to do again with the with the brain and the way we perceive certain vibrate. It has to do with vibrations. We get into this kind of vibrating state, which does something for us. Mm. But I think I think philosophically, is that is our understanding of our divine nature. Music is, is our connection with that. Mm. Because, I mean, there's that famous video of, I think it was a Japanese man, and he played different types of music to water and then froze the water and looked at the crystals that were created. And, you know, with rock and roll, it was very sharp and very rough. And then with kind of like playing it Mozart or something, and then it's like these beautiful crystals that are that are formed. And then if you extrapolate that onto the human being as what ninety percent water, then seventy yeah. percent water, then surely it's it's having this effect on us. Yeah, I think it's the vibrations. Yeah, the the shapes have to do with uh, how well organized the music is into in time how, how um, kind of the pattern that it's following is it's canonical is that the word it's a Greek word like it, it, it repeats in a kind of of a balanced way so in rock music it's very edgy and it's very so it, it creates this bad kind of shape and we say it's bad for us because internally probably because we are water, we feel that kind of edge and all that. But some people like it, you know. Mm, so. Of course. <laughs> I mean, to, to give my personal experience of classical music. You see, for me, classical music was always this thing for old people. It was like old people listen to classical music. Nobody that I knew who was young listened to classical music. And so it just always seemed like it was this thing that was slightly removed. It was like a, a little bit distant. and. I think that's very much the case for many people today that just don't even know what it is. Now, obviously, in times gone by, there was a, a, a massive appreciation for music, especially among the, the, the higher nobility and the um, ranking classes that, that allowed these giants to emerge and flourish because they were obviously supported and looked after there was a lot of patronage from key wealthy individuals that allowed composers yeah. to do what to do what they did and i feel like today like there's nobody really composing 
music on that level. But you are talking about the social phenomenon. There were no uh, CDs, there were no... So music was important to these people and they were paying for it to be composed. It was what was happening then. Now, with all this production, it's something very expensive to produce. Imagine if you have the orchestra at your... Bach was, was composing for five years a mass for every Sunday of the year. 52 Sundays, a mass for every Sunday, which means he composed it, he rehearsed it, and he played it <laughs> for five years. We're talking 200... Can you imagine the level of expertise from Bach himself, from the musicians that they had to play like Prima Vista, like first seeing from the singers. It was a completely different level. And that's something that happens with me as a teacher because the kids come to learn music, but to learn to play classical, classical music properly, you have to practice two hours, three hours a day. Nobody has the time. Nobody does that. So we never go to that level until there, unless there is somebody that is really talented or interested. So it's another concept that Ooh. if you're, today is different. Like today the means are different. So today is about electronic means, something easy, you know, something. But electronic music, as an example, yeah. it won't have the same impact on you as yeah piece of music played by an orchestra it's true because there is no there are no um vibrations ag again there is no environment in electronic music everything is kind of flat you just hear the the frequencies going up and down but there is no this harmony this um, uh, resonance that you hear with natural instruments and that's the main difference in terms of how it affects you emotionally as an experience. Mm. But uh, it's also a matter of, uh, of uh, taste. You know, they played Mozart to uh, this, uh, an experience. They played Mozart to these people in the Amazon started running around because they thought it was something evil coming to them. So it, it, it's, not, it's not everything for everybody. Mm. But, uh, you know, it's an experience that it is of high quality, the truth, uh, the hearing a symphony uh, in real time, it, it does. And you said something really nice that you went to hear this uh, um, concert, this Bach mass, and oh. you, it changed you. Yeah, and I cannot say how it changed me. I wanted to ask you, what does it mean it changed you? Well, I have that, an idea what it ha what happened, but yeah. But that's, I mean, that's why I even said in that, in recounting that experience, I said, all I can say is that the Abdullah that went in was not the same as the Abdullah that left. And I can't, I can't articulate it in words. It was just that something happened. I think what happens with music, with an experience that, uh, is so uh, strong that we say it changed us. There is a sense of salvation, especially if you go in there with a with a motion, with a, with a feeling of I don't know. Of because again, I will use chaos. It's like we are. This I heard that recently. We are we are surfers, 
and balancing between chaos and self-mastery. It, it, life is like that. Now, music is something similar. Actually, uh, Jordan Peterson said that about um, a musician, a, a, a jazz musician. He said he was balancing between ma- master. He was like a surfer balancing between mastery, uh, um, between uh, chaos and self and, and mastery. But that's life as well for me. That's mm. that's what we do. And in music, especially if you go to Bach and it's a religious piece of music, so it has all these ingredients of lifting you up. Mm. There are certain steps. There is this, this sense of salvation. It's almost like catharsis. It's, it's, it's almost like the same process. And it does something to us. You mentioned there that you, Bach and there's these little techniques used to raise yeah. you up. Yeah. What are those techniques? I mean, obviously there's a vast array of them, but like, what's he doing to the music? <laughs> okay. Uh, I will explain it as a, because I, I can't explain Bach. Well, he's a genius, but in general, what happened with music that had some kind of religious context, um, be, even before notation, whatever had a divine meaning. So you talk about Jesus, you talk about love, you talk, the melody was going up. There was a peak. Mm-hmm. And then there was a drop whenever something was really hard on the soul or talking about even human existence. Uh, so it was designed to keep you down, to always feel that God is, is higher than you. So if you, if you, if you think of music as, if you think a line separating, you know, paradise <laughs> and earth, let's say in music, there is this line that everything goes up as an emotion and everything goes down as an emotion as well. Mm. What Bach does very well, he creates these moments of tension that can, can be for a little bit too long, like again and again and again, until there is one chord that will be your release, like that everything comes to a conclusion. Mm. That's something that they use very often. It's called music expectations as well. That is used very often in, in composition. But, um, that's what it's like. It's like a roller, roller coaster. It's like throws you to the sky and puts yeah. you down. That's what music does. And that's what you hear with Bach. But simply, simply analyze this is this kind of process of divine and uh, the earthy, whatever difficult things. Mm. So you balance between the two without even knowing. It doesn't have to do with lyrics necessarily. Music does that. And then when you come to like, Mozart and not his not like the Requiem Mass or those pieces but just the pieces which are just joy because I've started playing when when I'm putting my boys to sleep I'll just play a little bit of something Mozart Beethoven well I don't like to play them Beethoven because it gets them all worked up and then they don't go to sleep yeah Beethoven has (laughs) but if you but if you play um what is it? There's Mozart's Sonata Number no. Sixteen, and I was just lying there, and I was just listening to it, and I was thinking that this is—it is sublime. It just—it sounds like almost like a river trickling over uh, rocks or something. You know, it's just this kind of. Don't even You're know right. how Mozart. Mozart. When you hear the music of Mozart, you hear a pure genius. It's very difficult as a performer 
to memorize Mozart because in case of Bach, let's say there is technique. All, all of us that studied uh, composition from classical music and music theory, it comes from Bach's uh, works because Bach had some principles that he followed and mm-hmm. that way he shaped the whole era. Mozart is just something that comes in his head, exactly like you say, like a river. So even if the idea is repeated, it's not the same, mm-hmm. you know? There is a little bit of difference, but it's this pure genius with him. So, yeah, your, your, your idea of Mozart is correct. That's what you hear. There's no technique. As, there is technique because the guy was studying since he was three. He was writing uh, symphonies at four or five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, this is all. I mean, I wonder if he lived longer what he would have uh, created. Who knows? Hmm. So with Mozart, it was different then. It was it was some kind of just inspired sound. Mm. He was also a rebel, so he didn't like laws, and uh, he would just do whatever he liked. And he was he was he wasn't uh, respected very much uh, because of that. He was he would stare uh, like uh, problems in the in in the palace and stuff like that because he would do exactly what he he wanted. Mm. Once at the university, they showed us the, uh, a manuscript mm-hmm. from an original manuscript of, of Mozart and the original manuscript of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Okay. So the Mozart thing had no corrections. It was, <laughs> it was like a clean, like that. For Beethoven to come to the da 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 da, to that theme, it took him five pages of crosses. He was, Kind of, so it was working on the theme. It uh. wasn't something that was happening naturally. So whatever talent was there, he was working on it as well. It's a, it's a different process of, uh, of composing, but Mozart is one of the exceptions, really. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, to compose a symphony at four or five years old <laughs> is exceptional. Right? <laughs> and annoying. <laughs> because, <laughs> because where do you go from there? Yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing. But it, see, in that book, The Ten Symphonies, it mentions, it doesn't talk much about Mozart, to be honest. Um, but it does say that his whole life was a composition. So there's the pieces of work which he wrote down but his life was composing. So whether he was at a dinner party, he would be playing music with the with the cutlery. Yeah, or if yeah. he's or if he was walking down the corridor, he'd be like his steps would be in a rhythm, you know, so everything he did was just composing music. But he was on the autistic spectrum too, huh? Ah, okay. <laughs> so that's another he had Tourette's he used to swear and <laughs> he couldn't control himself um, so this obsession with sound is a genius it, uh, is a revelation of a genius but it's a revelation of something that is not uh, the mainstream I don't know the way that brain usually works he was on the autistic spectrum that's why this obsession with sound yeah and there is a, there's a different. I mean, my experience with the Mozart that I have listened to, it has a very different feel to all other compositions. There's nothing like it. It's different. 
Yeah, because he doesn't obey any rules. So you don't hear the principles of, of the aesthetics of his era. You just hear him. You just listen to his, his ideas. That's why he's so unique. Now, the, how do you express an idea through music? This is the thing, because when you get into the technicality of music and uh, the way the books are written, talking about music and this idea and this uh, contrast and this feeling, and this, it's like, how are the composers doing that with the music? It's complicated, but it has, I think it has two, two um, parallel things that are happening. The first thing is you learn the technique, you learn a method. It's almost like you're learning a recipe for something. So if you want to create a sonata, there are st certain steps you have to make, like A, B, A. Like you have the theme, then you have a variation on the theme in another scale, and you go back to the first uh, idea and finishing always in your uh, toning, in your original scale. It, th there are steps that you take. So if you wanted to compose something that is uh, sounds like Mozart, sounds like Bach, it's very easy. It's called pastiche. It's not even considered to be a composition. But it is making something. It's not easy, very difficult, but it is making something in the style of these composers. So after you have studied for all these years and they have kind of put in your head all these ideas, then you have to break out of that to find your own voice, which is what I'm trying to do with the intuition course with Richard, you know, because I seem to have blockages everywhere. Everything sounds like something that I have heard before, you know, something. Uh... So to find your original voice, it's an internal process. Um, it has to do with your uh, aesthetic, what you like as a, you know, as a general uh, feeling, your favorite scales, but it is, it is a process that is not magical. It's not happening if you go to the sea and you watch the, the waves go up and down, you know, mm -hmm. there is a technique behind that, but the original idea, that's something that has to come sometimes from up. You have to become this conduit, you have to be open to receive an idea that is original, that is out of what you have heard before. And um, so if you have this idea, which could be a melody, which could be a harmonic um, progression, and then you build on that. So you, you, you have your first kind of, like, uh, how do you call the, the thing that you put in the bread to... Uh, yeast. yeast. You have your yeast. Yeah, you have your yeast, and then you build around around that. Yeah, in cool. in very simple terms. <laughs> so, how was Beethoven's music political? Political. Yeah, because he was. I mean, my understanding of Beethoven, a lot of his work is that against the political impositions on him, so the rise of Napoleon and all of this uh, chaos that's happening in Europe at his time, he was calling people through his music to be free. Yeah. And yearning for this freedom and this kind of 
warrior courage. Abdallah, you have captured music as something that is very philosophical, very, you know, high. You, you talk about music from a historical, philosophical point of view. But in reality, what Beethoven did was breaking the harmony. Beethoven is the most revolutionary composer of his time. He's the one that introduced romanticism. He's the only composer that is both classical and romantic. Uh-huh. And he did that by uh, creating these extended chords that they were not uh, major minor anymore. He put a ninth, a thirteenth, like notes that they were in continuation that were dissonant. So they were creating this, this volume. He put brass into his orchestra. He created this kind of um, very epic music, if that's his poli- But his political resistance was coming even from using different chords or putting a couple of trumpets in his, uh, in his uh, orchestra. That was a political act for these times. And the famous anecdote, he wouldn't uh, bow in front of the uh, emperor and all of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he was a revolutionary. Beethoven is, for me, is, is my favorite, one of my favorite. Bach first and then Beethoven. He has um, advanced m- music to, to an extent that within his lifetime that it, it didn't happen before or after. I mean, now people are stuck. We are on postmodernism and they don't know what they are doing. <laughs> We're going back, you know, yeah, because there is a limit to all this freedom. I mean, modernism broke all of that, yeah. So you said that using the brass instruments and the trumpets, that was political. It could be, yeah. Why? Wouldn't it? Because if. Every political system has certain principles. So if the emperor thought that the music he likes had to have certain instruments, certain harmonies, even that something, even something so small was a political act. Uh, Okay. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I also hear it. I mean, there's the one piece by Beethoven, the Coriolan overture. Yeah. And it's like the use of the trumpet in that is, is just like, it's yeah. so militant. It's yeah. just like, it's a war cry. Like you hear it as the trumpet's going off. It's just like, yes, onto war. <laughs> it's brilliant. I love it. Imagine how brave it was from him to do that. If he's the first to do it, go against the whole system, a whole, a whole aesthetic of, of the classical period. I love Beethoven. He's amazing. <laughs> Is that what, so you, I mean, you mentioned romanticism. Is that romanticism, what he was doing? The principles of romantic music is that uh, harmony had become more interesting. It's accepting more uh, dissonant chords. It's accepting more emotions, like everything is like you you die on the piano to play a romantic song. I mean, unless you just... uh, leave your last breath there it's not romantic so and it and it went into very um uh, exper- ex- the expertise became very very difficult it was almost acrobatics the romantic music is is all about um craftsmanship so the most difficult songs the most difficult chord progressions the most emotions the more all of that 
And some of these composers suffered as well for it. I mean, they were they were living like that, like a Schubert, like he had this miserable life and he was producing this beautiful music. Um, so yeah, that's that's what romanticism is as a, as a as an aesthetic. Yeah, if you wanted to analyze the the songs, yeah. Well, I mean, I also know that Beethoven's life was pretty miserable at times. I mean, he struggled a lot, and he still produced this magnificent music. So, was do you think that was an escape, or from a kind of like psychological perspective? What Beethoven had in his heart as a, as a as an artist didn't necessarily mean it was his character as well. Mm. The two things can be separate. It's very often that uh, there are people that are very awkward, very rude, very, and then you listen to them playing or you listen to them, you listen to their work, and it's absolutely amazing. Somehow he couldn't relate to the world the same way he related to his music, to his divine, let's say, self. Mm. So he was open as a soul when it came to creation, but maybe he was closed when it came to interaction with other people. Mm. I, I, that's that's me as a coach now. I'm saying, I don't know. I mean, it was hard because he was he was uh, losing his hearing. How frustrating is that for a for a composer and for mm. somebody with his character as well? Because he was a very kind of uh, opinionated man and strong man. So. Mm. Yeah, losing control of the, yeah. <laughs> mm. And now there's this other giant, Richard Wagner. Okay. I I think I've mentioned Wagner to you, and you seem to not be so positive towards Wagner. No, I'm I'm positive towards everybody. I'm not impressed as 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 much as you are with Wagner. Uh -huh. <laughs> it has nothing to do with his uh, value as a composer or what he did. Because what but, impresses me about Wagner is the ring cycle yeah. and the politics in it and the mythology yeah, in exactly. it and the the exactly. the narrative that's within it. Um, exactly. So it's not a musical. It's not a musical appreciation. Uh, right, but that's that's what I don't have, and I want to kind of explore a little bit more a, a musical appreciation of Wagner. Again, not speaking or not understanding the grammar of the language of music. It's like I can experience it and feel the thing and experience whatever I experience, but it's like I feel that there's a level missing. There's something there. Like I said to you right at the beginning, it's like hieroglyphics. I know there's something there. I know something's being said, but I can't understand it. But, okay, that's parenthesis, we'll talk about Wagner, but music is not always to be understood, eh? It's to be felt as well. I mean, you don't have to analyze everything. You just, I think because this, this I think because these characters are very much prominent um, figures, which mm. you are attracted to. They are, that, that's what you are interested in, but maybe they don't have to say that much with their musical language. You just have to, the, 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 the value of it is the experience that you get out of their music and their life. Mm. But yeah, we can talk. I mean, Wagner, Wagner thought his music should be, um, experienced as if it was a religion. 
as if it was something sacred. He turned off the lights in the auditorium. Before that, the, because the king and all these people were there, the, the lights were on. Now the lights were off for Wagner. He created his own stage, his own theater for, I think it was for the ring cycle, because that was 18 hours of music. It was mm. played in two days. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he, uh, he created his own theater, which was hollow. The, the, the stage was hollow underneath. So he put half the orchestra under the stage, which is what they do in musicals now. So Wagner, just by taking these steps, he has influenced the whole of the 19th, 20th uh, century. Yeah? He, he, he is a big um, man. But uh, if you want to decode his music, I don't know how much value is in that. It's again, big chords, big orchestration. I mean, he doubled or tripled the instruments of the orchestra, I think. The guy was, uh, he had massive ideas. Everything was big and, uh, mm. you know. Um, so he creates this epic feeling of everything. And he's drawn into these stories as well of, uh, of uh, how do you say, of politics, like the, of people that rule that they lose their, you know, kingdom, their power and they come back. He, mm. he was, he was a traveler like that. I think that was his life. That's what he was looking for. Mm. And I know why you're drawn to it. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's, that's the, but as, as a, again, as somebody that had an influence in music in general, yes, he's one of the big characters. But yeah, there's this, this, this thing of the, the late motive. Yeah. What is Late. that? Leitmotiv is that every character has its own music, its own little theme. Yes. So whenever Abdallah appears in the play, this music plays, this, I don't know, this cello song, whatever. So that's the first time that they did that, that they created characters almost like a theater uh, play in uh. light, with leitmotifs. Before it was an idea, one original idea that was uh, developed with, you know, through the, mostly through the sonata idea, this cyclical ABA form. But with the okay. leitmotif things were more free because now the ideas could uh, kind of come anytime into the music and then go and it didn't have to be a continuation of uh, progression and stuff like that. So yeah, the leitmotif is a little melody for its character. It's just <laughs> when you said that to me, it, the, the thing that appeared in my mind yeah. was the Emperor Jahangir, the man that built the Taj Mahal, Okay. his father, his passion was basically taming cheetahs and his favorite oh, cheetah yeah his favorite cheetah would be carried around on a palanquin you know those things with the guys carrying them uh -huh, okay yeah, yeah so he had his the cheetah the cat you know it's there just sitting on the on the palanquin and it would be carried around the the palace and he had his own musician to announce his arrival. <laughs> so I mean, it was like it was the 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 emperor's favorite cheetah was it was like a prince, you know, it was like a human. It had its own like little entourage, and 
you're just when you're talking about the late motive it's just that's what i was thinking of i was like oh yeah emperor Jahangir made a late motive for for his favorite cheetah that's very roman as well for example peter and the wolf uh, the, the orchestral thing have you have you played that to your children that's full of light no, motives what is that peter, peter and the wolf but what is it it's a, it's a piece of music okay. uh, that that portrays every every um, uh, instrument of the orchestra with a character. So the I don't know the the wolf is like brass. The 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 Peter is violin. So the kids listen to it and recognize the, the instruments as they recognize the characters. Now, the harmonics of our voices. Okay. I know from my experience with you and the others that were on the coaching course with us, and you had your list of all the different keys, yeah. and based on the, what is it, the tonation of our voice? Is that what you'd yeah, say? The, the, the fundamental frequency, because but, we yeah. speak, but there is one frequency that we are drawn to, and that's the fundamental of our uh, voice, yeah. So based on our fundamental frequencies, you can read into our character. That's a new thing to me. That Richard introduced that to me. I, What I do, I can hear people's voices and I can say you are C major, you are F minor, you are, you are this. That's what my ability is, and that's why um, it makes me a bit... It's a, it's a rare ability, so not many people can do that. Mm. But there is this philosophy, it comes from Germany, that every key has certain characteristics. And as I was curious, I started listening. I mean, I don't know the, the tonality of my husband's voice or my child. I never noticed, you know. I was thinking, mm. I was thinking the other day, and I still don't notice because... I notice what they say to me. I don't care about, you know, it doesn't, you know. But um, since I started noticing people's voices, uh, when I say, okay, according to this philosophy, this is what you are, people agree. Even mine, which is like a C minor, uh, is like uh, always looking for lost love. I, I do. I, I, I want. I want the love around, and it is always like, ah, I want more. It is part of me. But what happened now um, with your family as well, there's something else that has happened. Because it, ha it, it happened that one of your brothers speaks in the same tonality as your dad, and one of your sisters, same tonality as your mom. So now it's a, it's a, a whole new um, inquiry. Do we influence our kids, do they take characteristics from us and they take out also our frequency? You know, it, 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 it might be a real theory, this one, to be tested. You're the outliners, you and the, and your sister, you don't see it, you don't see it in there, but I don't know how, how real is that, you know, but, um, yeah. So that's the principles of this idea is that certain tonalities are carrying certain characteristics, makes you feel like that. And until now, most people find themselves in what that philosophy says. Yeah, they agree. Well, you know what I found? You see, you see, like, you mentioned my brother and my one sister and whatever. I, I think I'm F-sharp, I speak in F-sharp major, 
but I can flip over to F sharp minor, and the difference in characteristics of the two are like horrendous polar opposites, where <laughs> one is like the triumphant giant or whatever, and the other side is just like gloomy, horrible yuck. And when you mentioned all the ones of my siblings, what was interesting for me was to read the negative of the positive. And because I know them all, having grown up with them, I could see exactly the same thing as with me, that when I'm gloomy, I'm F-sharp minor, right? And then I'm really horrible. And with each one of my siblings, if I read the negative version of the positive, it was, it was spot on, as well as the positive. If they're on a good vibration, if, if they're on a good frequency, they're on their major, but okay. they contain within them the possibility of minor when everything's going wrong. Yeah. And it was spot on with every single one of them. It was really interesting. It's really interesting. And imagine, Abdallah, if it was as easy to categorize people by knowing their scales. It, 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 will become, it will become a, selective, a selection process, which is not very nice. So we need to leave a bit of room for interpretation in that. But yeah, we do have major and minor in us. Mm. We do resonate more with other people. It's just interesting that it makes sense musically too. Because, for example, when we were doing the course and we were five coaches, we were, all of us were forming one chord with Richard in it as well. We were forming one chord, which is amazing as an idea that we all came to. And I think that group of us will last a long time like that. Kind of, we connected in that course. So if you put all our notes together, it was making a chord. Wow. We harmonized, which is a beautiful thing to see. And I had this idea, and I had this idea of people sending me their voices, uh, reading a poem, and then isolating just one line of that and see if I can create clusters of people that have similar principles, similar kind of um, ideas of the world, you know, and we can create a piece of music that will, that will always evolve as new people are coming in, you know what I mean? So it's just another way of, of looking at reality, but through a musical way. And it's amazing that it makes sense as music, because it, it, it could not, you know. It's not necessary that it would be harmonious, but it is. That's the interesting thing. Right. So you were telling me earlier that you're, you're looking for your voice. That, yeah. There you go. Boom. Ah, that's my voice. Well, you're saying that you were telling me about the musicians and how it's like tapping into that kind of... Ah, ah, ah that's what you mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me very clearly like there's your voice coming through because that was your realization from the from your life of learning music, right? And there's your inspiration where you've got all the notes laid out in front of you in the chord that harmonizes, and I just yeah. need to write it in your own voice. And then there's new notes come in, we just, you know, add it. It'll be fun. I, I want to hear that piece of music. <laughs> I know, me too, but it's not easy. It, it, yeah, but it's an interesting concept. Mm. It's very interesting. And it makes sense in a group of people that... Um, 
kind of resonate, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, might be a research project. Who knows? I don't know. What note is the polar opposite of F sharp major? Polar opposite. Or what one does it really, does it clash with? The next, the one next to it. Which is the what? F. F. Oh, and that's what Zainab is, my little sister. <laughs> In music, the more, the most dissonant thing you can find is two notes next to each other. So F to F sharp, it will be the, the worst sound you can create. Yeah. Doesn't mean it has to be the same for humans, you know, it's just <laughs> music. <laughs> We are frequency, so our energy must be a frequency. Yeah, but it it might not be the frequency of our voice. It might be another frequency. Well, yeah, but I mean the frequency of our heart. But it would, even though we can't hear it, it's still resonating at a frequency, no? Funny enough, you know what the frequency of the heart is? F sharp major. <laughs> yeah. Is it? Yeah. Ah, c'est très intéressant. <laughs> uh, how, but what does that, what do you mean by that? I don't know, Richard said that. Because they have made these, these bells that they, they make this F sharp sound, and that's the sound, probably is the sound that the heart resonates more with. Mm. You feel it more in your heart. That's what it means. So why are there no compositions in F sharp major? Because I looked. It's a very difficult key to write. It has, Six, six sharps, six notes that are like uh, raised. So if you wanted to write that, it's very difficult. You will, you will choose an easier scale, something that doesn't have so many black keys. That's the main reason. If you go to Bach, he must have something in F sharp. He wrote the, the prelude and fugues in, um, in all the keys. So it must be an F sharp major minor. How does one go about learning the technicalities of the expression of music or how does it work well abdallah it takes years to learn all of that uh, if you want to become a composer but for you in in a kind of amateur level let's say you have to look into aesthetics so look at the aesthetics of music look at philosophy of music adorno um, they they explain kind of uh, uh, how the principles of the music and why music was built the way it's built. But uh, if you want to go deep into that, you need to have some basic uh, understanding of music. Um, maybe find analysis, analysis of symphonies. What happened? Because the analysis, there is such a thing that's called analysis. So, the analysis of the Beethoven's, for example, I did the analysis of the first movement of the sixth symphony of Beethoven when I was at the university. And uh, I had to say how it was orchestrated, why, and all, and all that. And I, I love this. It was, it was a canvas of, uh, of the outside. It was a beautiful thing. So yeah, you have to read the more specific about music rather than the history of the time. There was one thing that you you said to me, and it and it hit home, because I know it's the truth, and that was the thing of feeling the music. Yeah, difficult. You're asking me. I don't know how to feel the music a lot of the time, because I'm so ex, ex such an expert in everything <laughs> that it takes away. I have to just 
go into almost like a meditative state state but you cannot um you cannot get the meaning out of it but you the way you speak at the moment you try to analyze and get meaning out of everything you listen to because that, that that's where you are now like that's what you want to but i tell you yes absolutely yeah. but listening to mozart last night with my boys yeah. in bed that yeah. was i wasn't trying to find anything and it was just like because i'm very visual for me that sound i saw as this kind of trickling river and this water but you were with your kids so probably you were in a more receptive your more loving uh, situation oh, no, you were definitely. more relaxed oh yeah, yeah. no i was just lying there in the bed with yeah. you know one on each side and I was like, hey, we're going to listen to some Mozart. So, but it was, it was just this kind of like absolutely beautiful kind of just this kind of like almost like f it's like in some kind of fantasy movie, you know, some like forest, fantasy forest yeah. with little fireflies <laughs> and like this trickling water. But it was, it was, that was a feeling though. That wasn't a kind of, I didn't try and create that image. It was just something that kind of appeared in my head. You have to let go of a lot of um, your preconceptions of what the music is for you. I would say as an exercise, listen to things that you haven't listened before. Because the things that you already have thought about is, is difficult to switch off the mind. So the composers you like, but listen to new things and see if you can mm. listen with a fresh, fresh kind of point of view without trying to... Beethoven's quartets. Love them, yeah. How can one swim in them? Just listen. That's that's not an answer a musicologist can give. That's an answer some of the spiritual can give. It's um, yeah. Remember how we were saying you you have the peripheral vision and the focus vision. You need to just empty yourself of everything. And just become this kind of let music flow through you. Mm. So it, it takes it takes a certain amount of uh, of intention. You need to you need to you need to practice that, especially because at the moment you are listening to everything in a different way. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, try not to listen to the to the notes. Try to listen to the, the essence of them. Try to listen to. I don't know, your feelings while you are listening to something. Don't focus on what is happening. F focus on what you are feeling. Mm. <laughs> Difficult, Abdallah. If we knew how to do that, we would be better in life too. Music is a very good uh, kind of metaphor for life. Very good uh, uh, practice. Mm. There's definitely is yeah it's that thing of feeling. You got to feel it. To let go <laughs> of your perception, to let go of your analytical mind. It's it's all of that stuff that we talk about that in, that works in music too, especially when you listen to music as an expert. When you try to find meaning in it and uh, you try you start analyzing it, and sometimes it's better to be ignorant. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Nomos podcast. 
In this episode, Dr. Maria talked about how Bach creates tension through his music, and he builds it and he builds it and he builds it until the point at which a chord is played which releases all of that tension. And I have to say, going back to this episode and doing the edit on it, I realized that this conversation was a manifestation of that essence. I came to the episode viewing Western classical music through the eyes of its historical context, its political context, and the philosophy behind it. And Dr. Maria was coming with her experience and knowledge of music and the feeling of music. And it all led up to the end where the tension between our understanding met, the chord was played, and the secret of this episode was released. Once again, I've put all the relevant links in the episode description. Please do follow Dr. Maria. She's absolutely amazing. Her insights into the world are so moving. She's absolutely amazing. So follow her, keep tuned into her work, and I hope you've had a blessed year. I wish you all the best for 2023. See you in the new year. Stay tuned. Thank you.